Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, Dr. Teresa Tam joins me to talk about Canada's pandemic response, the kudos and the criticism. On a day when new positive case counts remain high in hot spots across the country, and all eyes are on the city of Winnipeg, it moves to a red zone on the pandemic scale. I'll speak with the mayor of the city. And our panel of parliamentary journalists on the countdown to the U.S. election and what Canada is preparing for. We'll begin tonight with the ongoing response to the COVID-19 pandemic in Canada. The number of new COVID-19 cases remains stubbornly high in those key hotspots of Quebec, Ontario and the western provinces, including Manitoba, which has the highest per capita positive case counts in the country. In the city of Winnipeg, it is now under a code red level and the rest of the province is a code orange. Some elective surgeries are being cancelled. The Premier of the province is now asking Manitobans to cut their social contacts by 75% and limit gatherings to just five people. And he says the government is considering an evening curfew in Winnipeg to limit those gatherings. When we were abiding by the fundamentals, we were beating COVID. Then some of us lost our way. And now COVID is beating us. And we need to get back to the fundamentals in order to flatten the COVID curve. And we need to do that now. Dr. Teresa Tam is Canada's Chief Medical Officer of Health and really the face of the national COVID-19 response in this country. And she joins me now. Uh, Dr. Tam, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. It's good to see you. Look, we, we see spiking numbers in Manitoba. The numbers remain high in other provinces. And I, I guess I'm wondering at this point, how close do you think we might be to uh, the need for another heavy lockdown like we saw at the start of the first wave? Well, I think, um, you know, the resurgence, which is in fact in most provinces, um, apart from sort of the Atlantic and the territory, uh, is experience, they are experiencing a resurgence. And so all medical officers are concerned about that. Um, many of the acceleration, it was initially driven by uh, younger adults, you know, the 20 to 29 and up to 39-year-olds, but is now beginning to also impact the older age groups, which are at higher risk. So yes, we are concerned, but we can do something about this. And uh, what we're trying to do, um, my colleagues on the ground particularly, is to have a balanced approach so that you're not using broader um, public health measures and try as much as possible uh, to use more targeted approaches. But of course, it's a really difficult and fine balance. So at what, at what point, if we, uh, I mean, are you satisfied with what you see today, for instance? There are still high case numbers. Uh, but some suggestion the trend might be actually coming down a little bit. Are you satisfied by what you see today? Or are you uh, concerned that we're not close to where we need to be yet to get this thing under control in a second wave? Well, I think right now we need to double down on our efforts. So we've seen that um, Ontario, for example, and Quebec, in some of the hotspots, they've instituted some more uh, measures 
and we are hopefully seeing some of the effects of the slowing down of the resurgence in those areas. But other areas of the country are escalating, as you've just said, whether it's in the sort of prairie provinces or in other hotspots, um, even in British Columbia and others. And so, um, you know, the, the key is to act fast, because if you act faster, you can come out of the resurgence uh, that much faster as well. So some of the concerning aspects would be whether the public health system is able to keep up with not just the testing, but also the contact tracing and then the isolation. What we're asking people to do and, and really be conscious of is to limit uh, contact that are outside your household or that's not necessary. I mean, people do need to go to school, do need to go to work, but try to minimize contacts because it is so difficult for public health to keep tracing uh, a lot of people. And then when they can't keep up, as you've seen in some areas of Quebec and in Ontario, that's when you're going to get into uh, major issues with community transmission right. and resurgences. You, so, so that is the concern. You, you suggested to Canadians last week as you delivered your annual report that they, as you just touched on, they need to reduce their contacts by 25% to try to flatten the curve of this second wave. The Manitoba Premier today, he's calling on residents in that province to cut contacts by 75%. And he's considering an evening curfew in Winnipeg to shut down gatherings. Uh, what do you think of that kind of approach? Do we need curfews now to force people to follow the rules? Well, I think it depends on your knowledge of your local population and who's impacted. So I can't really speak for, you know, Manitoba or Winnipeg, but it depends. I, I believe that they are seeing younger populations. Some of them are linked to certain settings. So I think that has to be adapted. As to how much uh, of the restrictions need to be done, the earlier um, people get, uh, communities get uh, community transmission slowed down, the less of these broader measures you have to take. But I have to say that it is important to take those decisive actions and do it fast. And so when I said 25%, that's for the whole country at this point in time. Right. So depending on your local setting, you may need to do more, uh, but that's up to the local medical offices of health. I want to ask you about uh, this report today from Duke University that Canada has secured far and away more vaccine doses per capita than any other country, and that's put developing countries at risk of perhaps not getting enough of the vaccine, and that's contrary to what Canada promised, as you know, by signing on to the COVAX facility uh, to ensure equitable access to vaccines in all countries. Is Canada guilty here of hogging vaccines? Well, I think... Um you know, our decision makers are trying to protect Canadians. You know, that is uh, uppermost in their minds. But by um, supporting and investing in so many different vaccines and providing financial and other supports to it, it's actually helping the global capacity as well. So I think that we're looking towards contributions to the COVAX facility that's already been made. But of course, if... Um, you know, we don't know which vaccines would become successful, that's safe and effective. But if more is available than what Canada needs, then there's a way to help the global response as well. So I think you have to do both. You have to protect your population, but also some of this investment will benefit the global capacity investments. And as I've said in my, my report, no one's protected until everyone's protected. So, yeah, are you, so are, you, are, you, are you suggesting if we have more vaccine than we need, we would then distribute that to developing countries? I think that's, 
that's part of it, and that's why we're in the COVAX facility. But it's also about you know this unprecedented response, not just on the research side, but on the manufacturing and other readiness. If countries like Canada didn't have these agreements and didn't invest, then we wouldn't get the kind of um, acceleration in the capacity that we're seeing. So I think that's a contribution as well. Um, but I think our, our policymakers are trying to protect Canadians, but at the same time, in parallel, uh, investing in the global response. All right. In your annual report last week, you called for a structural change in Canada across health, economic and social sectors, better housing, better wages for low income workers, improved conditions and outcomes for racialized communities who've been hardest hit by the pandemic. Um, and I guess I'm wondering why you wanted to raise that now while people are trying to deal with a second wave of of the pandemic. Why did you think it was important to put that that notion and that thinking out there now? Well, it's extremely important because we've seen that the pandemic doesn't impact everyone equally, but it also does affect everyone if some of us not not well protected. So everyone needs to be protected. Just for example, long-term care facilities, uh, that was a major impact in the initial uh, wave. So we know that ageism, uh, our societal support for seniors was not adequate. So that's important. It's not just the residents of long-term care facilities, but also the workers, many of whom, the personal support workers, people who uh, clean our um, long-term care and hospital environments, they're poorly paid, they're in precarious jobs, often racialized and often women uh, who have family to support, who needs to hold down several jobs. So as a result of trying to provide us with those essential services, many of this population inadvertently, um, given the virus being a sort of transmissible when people are asymptomatic, for example, is um, inadvertently uh, spreading some of the viruses and not being supported to uh, have proper isolation, for example, because they live in crowded uh, uh, settings. So all of these are really important. If you one, you want to get the pandemic under control, but two is all the way through recovery. If we if we didn't have enough social economic support, many of people can't afford to stay at home when they're sick. They can't afford to because they don't have sick leave. They can't afford to not go to work, which means that um, in some instances um, they are not able to um, stay back when they're sick. So. So all those supports are very important. And if you didn't have a home it, and you're living in congregate, crowded situations, you're less likely to be able to um, contain the virus. So I think the pandemic really shone a light on some of those systemic uh, cracks in our system. And I'm suggesting that in, in the future, not just for the current response, is that if we want to be resilient and be and protect Canada from the next pandemic, then we have to take into account the social and economic dimensions and have the whole of society and interdepartmental and intersectoral response. All right, Dr. Teresa Tam, uh, thanks so much for your time today and uh, we'll talk again soon. Take care. You too, stay safe. Let's go back to the province of Manitoba now. The Premier there is looking at a possible curfew to stop late-night gatherings in Winnipeg. 
Manitoba has the highest per capita COVID-19 infection rate in the country now. And uh, Winnipeg is now in a red zone to try and bring the numbers down. 241 new cases, five more deaths reported in the province today. Brian Bowman is the mayor of Winnipeg. He joins me now. Mayor Bowman, thanks for taking time to speak with me. Let, let me, you know, Manitoba had been doing uh, fairly well. Uh, Winnipeg had been doing well managing the COVID-19 spread. What's happened in the past few weeks in your city? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, you're right. I mean, in the summer, we were the, the envy of uh, a lot of regions in the country, and we were definitely flattening the curve. Um, you know, it's made a resurgence, and, and we're being impacted um, quite significantly right now. And so I think, in part, I think folks just uh, are, have not been as vigilant as they needed to be. And uh, obviously, we're, as a community, working with other levels of government right now to step up our efforts to get back to where we we need to be because the numbers in, in recent days and weeks continue to climb. The number of deaths um, have just been uh, something that uh, we don't want to see, of course, in our community or any anywhere in Canada. Right. Uh, Premier Pallister today floated the idea of a, a curfew at night to prevent gatherings in the city. He wants to uh, consult uh, the people over the next couple of days, I guess. What do you, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, I mean, that was the first time we've heard about uh, the possibility of a curfew for our, our city and our region today. Um, look, uh, what I've said uh, today in, in other uh, media requests is just that if the province has the epidemiology and the evidence to support it, if it's the right thing to do, uh, I think they should just do it and uh, not waste uh, a, a single day in uh, surveying. Um, you know, the, the virus doesn't take a night off and time is really of the essence. and so. Uh, if the if the science and the and the evidence support a curfew, then uh, you know obviously I think they should just take that action. I mean, a curfew is a pretty drastic measure. What 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 are you seeing in your city? That so let me let me go back a bit. So you you want them if they, if you think it's if they think it's the right idea to go ahead and and do it now. What do you think? Do you think it's the right idea? Well, I, I certainly haven't seen the evidence to support it at this stage. Uh, they've they've discussed. Uh, uh, a single party today in uh, in the premier's press conference, and so um, again, the the province has that that data and the health information. And again, if they if they've got data that supports it, then I think they should do it. But it's not that's not information that that I've been privy to. I've actually seen the community doing its part. I've seen people stepping up. Um, you know, businesses are being shut down. The streets are getting awfully quiet, and Winnipeggers are doing their part. I mean, we know how to weather storms here. We'll weather this storm. Uh, we will make it to the other side, but um, we know it's going to take a lot of work. And, and if the province and Manitoba Health feel that that's one tool that's going to help flatten the curve, then we'll, we'll support that. Uh, have you been uh, satisfied with the response from provincial health officials and the premier to the pandemic so far? Well, there's, there's always improvements that could be made. Um, we've been working really hard to, to support Manitoba Health. Um, you know, we took the lead on masks, making it mandatory in all city facilities back in August. And uh, I'd called for uh, shortly after that uh, this fall for just a, a province-wide uh, mandate on masks. Uh, it took some time, but I know they've moved to a level orange outside of the Winnipeg metropolitan region. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of analysis that can happen after we've gotten through this pandemic of all levels of government and what they could do better. At this stage, we're just trying to make sure that they can be as effective as possible and be co collaborative because right now all governments really need to work together in order to protect the safety and well-being of our residents. Right, but I, I get the sense in listening to you that uh, 
you, you, maybe you're not all that satisfied that that things that the things that are being done now maybe should have been done sooner. Um, yeah, I, that, that's a fair assessment. I mean, we we'd like to see things move a lot quicker. I mean, the the province announced uh, new powers that they were giving to municipal governments about a week ago. Uh, we're still waiting to hear from them where they want us to target any enforcement measures uh, that we might be doing on you know uh, to help them out and. We want to do that. Um, you know, we're still waiting for, for that information. And in the meantime, we've moved from an orange level to a red level. And so, yeah, there's a sense of urgency. And, uh, you know, like I, like I said earlier, I mean, the, the virus doesn't take a night off. It doesn't take the weekends off. I mean, it, it's, it's moving through our community right now. So time is of the essence and we want to move as quickly as we can. Right. But do you think health officials and, and, the, and the premier share your sense of urgency? Uh, I think they do now. Um, there, there's certainly um, an urgency in the discussions we're have, having with um, some of the ministers. Uh, I just got off the phone with the uh, Minister of Justice and the Minister of Municipal Relations. Uh, there's definitely a sense of urgency now, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad. I mean, we want to move as expeditiously as possible to support their efforts. Okay. So, I, just in the, in, the, in the less than a minute we have here, I, I know you've been pitching for uh, small businesses too. They're they're now in this uh, red zone lockdown phase, essentially. No uh, no dining in in the restaurants and bars and and so on. Uh, you've been pushing for more help for them. W- what is it you want in particular from the provincial government? Well, firstly, I mean the federal government has stepped up in a significant way, and we should acknowledge that uh, the province has a a package, but. I haven't met many businesses that have been able to qualify for it. Um, so what I'm hearing from, uh, for example, I'll give one example. There, there were a number of restaurants and, and bars that were closed uh, about a, a couple weeks ago. And, um, you know, what we heard from them is what they'd like to see. And what I'd like to see is that when there are provincial public health orders rolled out, that there's corresponding targeted financial relief for those industries that are directly affected because the province is aware i mean the the measures are intended to to slow them down or shut them down we'd like to see a corresponding uh, support there i mean province and and federal governments uh, collect pst and gst respectively when the economy is pumping on all cylinders Uh, there's a corresponding obligation and ability for those levels of government to support business when they need it most and right now they really need it all right winnipeg mayor brian bowman Uh, thanks so much for your time tonight take care My pleasure. Thanks. Well, every Monday I'm joined now by three colleagues from the Parliamentary Press Gallery, as usual. Susan Delacorte is a columnist with the Toronto Star, Joel Denis Bellavance, Parliamentary Bureau Chief for La Presse, and John Iveson is a columnist with the National Post and Parliamentary Bureau Chief for Post Media. Good to see you all. Uh, Susan, let's talk a little bit to start about the U.S. election tomorrow night. What's on the line for Canada and the outcome? Uh, well, you know, I, I guess maybe an end to thinking about it and being consumed by it, and I'm not talking just about the election. Uh, Trump has eaten up a lot of oxygen uh, in this government's file. I think, you know, an argument could be made that they might have done a better job in the first term of Justin Trudeau's government if they had not been all consumed with everything Trump and his unpredictability. So I think, I think they're looking for a little peace. Uh, I'm not sure they're going to totally get it, you know, uh, just because Trump, even if Trump is gone, some of the the grievances that fed the Trump base are not gone. But I think that um, clearly there is more of a relationship between uh, this liberal government and a democratic uh, regime in the United States. And I I think, you know, 
we we are spectators to this, but we have a vested interest as well too. So I think, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe we're just looking for a little peace. All right, uh, Joel Denis. I, I suppose there's a, lots of open possibilities there. If, if uh, Donald Trump wins again, when a lot of pollsters and uh, predictors say he's not supposed to win again, that he'll get defeated. Imagine if he does win again. Uh, that that would suggest uh, uh, even more, um, I would think, authority for him to take on countries like Canada and, and whoever else. But uh, there's the, also always the possibility he won't win. So what do you think's at, at stake for, for Canada here and whatever the outcome is? Well, everybody in the political class is hoping for a return to normalcy. Normalcy would be having the United States as a reliable partner, not only as a neighbor and commercial partner, but also in international institutions like the WTO, for example, NATO, NORAD, and the DUN as well. Because Canada's influence in the world depends very much in the U.S. being engaged in the world as well. So uh, we're hoping for that. But uh, if you mentioned the possibility if Trump wins, well, I talked to some ministers about that. And the key uh, strategy, if that happens, is that keep the Team Canada approach, have ministers engage with Congress have uh, premiers engage with the governors, for example, and have mayors engage with the, their U.S. counterparts. So they will be keeping the, that Team Canada approach that was well executed under uh, the Liberal government in the last four years. Right. So all possibilities on the table, uh, all uh, eventualities, John, being prepared for. Uh, uh, what will you be watching for? What do you think is at stake? Well, if Joe Biden wins the state visit in December 2016, I guess it was, uh, is going to look very prescient. At, at the time, it looked like uh, it was a huge mistake because he was invited. He came up after Trump had been elected. Mm -hmm. But um, the fact, if he if he wins, then you know we, there's already a relationship there, and I think that uh, it will be as comfortable as a pair of old slippers for the Trudeau government to get along with uh, a Biden administration. Uh, clearly, if that goes the other way, there's going to be uh, it's going to be another long four years. And I think the thing that JD just mentioned there about uh, Canada in the in the world sphere, um, you know, looking at China in particular, you look, you're looking for the United States to f to perform a counterweight mm. to China that we can get in behind with with our like-minded allies, the UK, the other five I countries. And, um, and Trump has just not provided that. He's been absent from the world stage. And I think that Canada needs uh, an active uh, United States as, as China starts to be, put itself in a dominant position. I mean, that's its stated yeah. goal, to be in a dominant position. Okay. And we need, we need the Americans. All right, let's, let's move on from that. The, uh, you know, the possibilities, are like, the other thing to watch for, we may not have, it, a, a, we may not have an outcome for, for days to come. And, and, and so we... Uh, we may see reaction from the Canadian. We, we, we may not know what we have, uh, I suppose, for several days. So uh, lots to continue talking on that. Uh, J.D., let me turn to you now. And uh, The bloc leaders making his presence felt in the Commons these days. His, his motion was defeated today to have Justin Trudeau apologize uh, for the fact his father invoked the War Measures Act during the October crisis 50 years ago. And he and the Conservatives today both putting the heat on the Prime Minister over how seriously... Uh, he really does support the notion of freedom of expression in the wake of those terrorist attacks in France over the past couple of weeks. What's Blanchet trying to do here? Well, obviously, he's trying to paint the prime minister as a weak leader defending our rights, basic rights, like freedom of expression and all that. Um, he's trying to, uh, you know, I think he's preparing, he's preparing the next federal election, clearly. Um, wanted to brush the prime minister as a weak leader. 
not defending our basic values and not defending uh, traditional uh, allies like France. Uh, the statements from the prime minister has had huge echo in France. Um, and people are not very happy about the fact that the prime minister should not take a more hard stance on uh, um, um, de defending freedom of expression against the uh, Islamic uh, uh, integrist uh, attack that took place in France. So basically, Mr. Blanchet wants to secure that position as being the real defender of Quebec, uh, uh, the, the Quebec people, their values that are closely more oriented uh, with, with France. So, Susan, what are your thoughts here? Is, is, is Mr. Blanchet simply making mischief here? Or does, as he put the, the prime minister in a position where he needs to provide a little more clarity to what exactly he's prepared to defend by way of free speech? So I am, loved, I, this isn't the first or last time, I guess, so but I am sitting here thinking, has the world gone mad? Um, because um, I too would like the prime minister to speak up more for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and it would be about, about Quebec secularism law. Uh, which Blanchette supports. Um, and um, right now that uh, that case is before the courts. Yep. A cynical person might think that Mr. Blanchette is up on his hind two legs about um, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms today because uh, I, it's the Quebec government and the Bloc Québécois, to me, on the secularism thing that have not looked all that strong. And I think... A lot of charter enthusiasts for quite a while have been hoping that Trudeau would speak out more strongly against that too. Right. Uh, he is not. So um, it did feel a little bit like the world upside down today. John, uh, put the world upside right for us. <laughs> well, you know, I think that uh, Trudeau is vulnerable on this subject, not just for, for bloc supporters, but also conservatives and people who are worried about freedom of expression. Um, you know, I think that Trudeau, as is his want, tries to be on the on all sides of every argument so that you know nobody's offended. But I think when you say I condemn the terrorist attacks, but it's whatever you say after but means that you 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 haven't gone far enough. And you know he, he invoked the idea Oliver Wendell Holmes' use of uh, you can't shout fire in a crowded cinema. Um, well, you know that, there are limitations on freedom of speech and and, and Holmes was a judge in a Supreme Court case which was about uh, First Amendment rights. I, I don't think you can use that case. I mean, th th that was later amended to say that you can't uh, call for lawless acts to take place. And this was not a lawless act. Showing cartoons to a, a classroom of students to discuss the, the idea of expression, of freedom of expression, was not a lawless act. And I think, therefore, the Prime Minister should have come down harder, as he should have done in the University of Ottawa case, which... Uh, Blanchette is also after him on. Right. And, you know, I, I do think that there's going to be ground made here that uh, quotes that Trudeau's making now will be brought back to haunt him during a general election. All right, we shall see. Uh, um, Susan, let me turn to you. Peter McKay, who lost the bid for the leadership of the uh, Conservative Party to Aaron O'Toole, announced today he will be not he'll not be running in the next election. Uh, surprised by that, or is that what we expected? I, I am not surprised um, now, I think if he had said this in the days after, you'll remember in the days after he lost unexpectedly, he still said that he was going to do it mm -hmm. or, uh, or that he was leaning quite heavily that way. But I think this is a sign that the bitterness of the defeat is still there. It was put in very nice language, but I think the bitterness is still there. And I think it's, uh, it's a wound uh, maybe unhealed in the conservative ranks. John, what are your thoughts on this decision? Any surprise to you? 
Yeah, I agree with that. I'm not surprised. I, I think uh, Aaron O'Toole will probably be mightily relieved that Peter McKay is not standing behind him because it was quite a bitter fight. And I do think that McKay has was really cut by this by the decision of the members. Um, it would have been very hard for him to come back and, and, and run in the next parliament, I think. All right. Uh, JD, what about you? Quelle surprise or no surprise? Uh, a bit of a surprise because I had uh, you know, heard that Mr. McKay was thinking about coming back. But if his decision not to come back, that means that his uh, political career is definitely over. He's not going to come back ever. I think that's the end of his career because I think the next election would have been the right moment to come back to Ottawa. All right. Uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you all for your time. Uh, we'll talk again. Take care. Take care, Peter. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time. Take care.